0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast.
1: Tonight on Primetime Politics... It's an unacceptable situation that our border is closed. No, we're not going to be suspending the agreement.
2: A new ruling on the safe third country agreement, a public safety minister under fire, and cross-party talks on foreign interference. A look at this week's headlines with our panel of journalists. As a Supreme Court justice steps down, Canada's Chief Justice wants more transparency on the conduct of judges and more action to fill judicial vacancies. I'll speak with the Chief Justice, Richard Wagner. And...
0: We're becoming followers of our followers when we should be leaders.
2: The former Conservative leader leaves Parliament, but not before a warning on social media and what he calls performance politics. Aaron O'Toole talks about his farewell message. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Andrew Thompson, in for Michael Serapio. We start with the Safe Third Country Agreement. The Supreme Court says it does not violate charter rights on liberty and security. However, justices do want a lower court to rule on equality rights. The Canada-U.S. agreement controls refugee movement on the border, and the two governments expanded it in March. Opponents say the agreement puts asylum seekers at risk in the United States. Here's a reaction from both sides to today's decision.
1: Today's decision from the Supreme Court has mixed results for refugees and refugee rights in Canada, but nothing has changed today in terms of the dangers that are faced by refugees at the border. We continue to call for the government to fully and immediately withdraw from the Safe Third Country Agreement.
0: It's important to understand that in addition to uh, changing the posture at the border, uh, that there are exemptions that exist. Exemptions that exist for people who have family members that are in Canada, for unaccompanied minors, and for other public policy reasons. The discretion of officers at the border to implement uh, decisions, despite the fact a person may have crossed through the United States, is an important component that will allow people to continue to make a claim where the facts determine that they, uh, in fact, were not
2: safe in the United States. Well, let's talk about that Supreme Court decision and more with our journalist panel. Tonda McCharles is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Joelle Denis Bellevance is Ottawa Bureau Chief for La Presse. And Bob Fife is Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. Tonda, I want to start with you. We have this ruling Mm -hmm. on the Safe Third Country Agreement today. What's the significance?
1: Well, look, I guess what it does is it upholds the government's view that a deal with the U.S. on how to treat uh, the flow of refugee seekers across the borders is a valid one, is a constitutional one. They, the court basically found that there are enough legal safeguards there that the rights of people seeking refugee status, if they're turned back at the Canadian border back into the U.S., that they're, they have enough protections there that this law is constitutionally valid. And the refi- refugee advocates still maintain that the U.S. is not a safe country for refugee seekers. But Sean Fraser, the immigration minister, said today they're going with the validity of it and they're not dropping it. They're not going to suspend it or withdraw from it.
2: Okay, Bob, let me turn to another minister, the Minister of Public Safety and his handling of Paul Bernardo's transfer. We've had three straight days now of conservative demands for Marco Mendicino to resign. What do you think the future holds for Mr. Mendicino now?
3: Well, look, we're all expecting a cabinet shuffle uh, in the coming weeks um, after the House shuts down and, the, uh, and before the Prime Minister goes on holidays. I would uh, think it would be very unlikely that Mr. Mendicino would remain a, in a very important por- portfolio of public safety. Uh, this is, uh, he's really uh, screwed this one up badly. And this falls uh, a a couple months ago when he tried to play politics with the gun control legislation and introduced uh, uh, a ban on uh, hunting guns that were used by rural hunters and rural people and indigenous people and blew up in their face. They had to withdraw the legislation. And now he's uh, completely mishandled the whole issue of Paul Bernardo, uh, saying he didn't know, blaming his staff. Nobody gets fired. It turns out the Prime Minister all office all knew. Nobody apparently told the Prime Minister. Um, so I, I, I can't see uh, him remaining uh, in that portfolio. He, I think he'll be, end up getting demoted. Whether he gets dumped from the Cabinet, I don't know. But uh, it has not been a very good uh, six months for uh, Marco Mendocino, and this week has been really bad for him. Okay, and, Joel Denis, this week, you know, we did hear Marco Mendicino say he's
2: going to force officials to notify the minister about high-profile transfers, that he's dealt with uh, the matter with his staff internally, that uh, the transfer of Paul Bernardo, of course, is under review. But uh, to Bob's point, we're dealing with one of this country's most notorious criminals. Yes. Do you think any of this
4: is going to be enough? No, and the opposition, I think, will keep demanding that Mr. Um, Mendicino uh, be shuffled out of his position or shuffled out of cabinet uh, I've, heard, I've talked to some cabinet ministers already, and they're speculating that they expect a uh, cabinet shuffle in July. And some ministers speculated that uh, who could take over Mr. Mendicino's portfolio? Mark Halden, who was mm-hmm. parliamentary secretary to uh, public Sec- security uh, minister. And he's been doing well as a House leader in the House yeah, of Commons. Dominic Leblanc. Dominic Actually. Leblanc. Dominic Leblanc's
1: yeah. name has floated too. Also,
4: so the both the, those
3: names mm-hmm. I've heard.
4: Yeah. yeah, so it's interesting that cabinet ministers all are already speculating about the future of the cabinet whereas Mr. Trudeau, I think, uh, uh, is still contemplating a cabinet shuffle. But to me, I think when Mr. Trudeau does shuffle his cabinet, he's got to read the riot act to his cabinet ministers because there have been a lot of missteps from not only Mr. Mendicino, but Bill Blair, Harjit Sajjan, and uh, so... Somebody it needs to read it to the Prime
3: Minister too, though.
4: <laughs> 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 yeah, and Tande, so it,
2: just to go back to Marco Mendicino, reporters did corner him Thursday for a few minutes, but we still don't have a real clear view of how the communication was handled uh, within his Bernardo staff matter. on the Bernardo matter. And we've just heard mm-hmm. talk about Harjit Sajjan, about Bill Blair. We've heard testimony this week uh, about... CESIS intelligence on foreign interference, how that's being handled in the government. And we even have Liberals this week saying, yes, there are some problems here with how the government is handling information. Uh, what does this all add up to you?
1: Well, you know, it's not really clear that there's one storyline here. I mean, in some cases, you know, there, there are systemic problems with how CSIS communicated with political masters. Um, and that's a agency. But what baffles me is how political staff, even if they thought that there was nothing Mr. Mendicino could have done to change the course of Bernardo's transfer because it's an independent decision, they must have recognized the political ramifications for any government facing that question. And so why he wasn't given a heads up, none of that makes sense. It it speaks to a bit of political complacency maybe at this stage in the mandate of the government. Or maybe there's just been so much turnover in staff that people are, their antenna isn't, you know, triggered to this kind of thing. But there are many, yeah, there are many problems, I would say. Or
3: it's, I don't want to know. If there's something really bad, don't tell us because uh you know this track record is getting to be very bad yeah. Yeah. and I mean, and you know if staff are staff are under the uh, under the unwritten rule is if this is controversial, let's not tell the prime minister mm-hmm. and let's not tell the uh the minister uh, and then he can, they can come out and say, well, we didn't know it's my staff
1: so whether it's you know um I guess uh, a less a fair attitude to information or it 's a willful political blindness, either one bodes badly for the government right The government and the people in in the key positions of power need to be aware of these things, and clearly there 's something going wrong i mean on no planet was the decision to transfer Paul Bernardo something that should have just been left to a bureaucrat to just, oh, that's just some bureaucratic decision and we don't need to think or, or contemplate. What were the rights of victims? How does the tr- privacy of Paul Bernardo trump the right of the families to mm-hmm. know about
4: yeah, it?
2: any way on, on here how the information is flowing.
4: Yeah, well, that would be the kind of mistakes that you could see in the early stages of a government, yeah. not a government that has been in power for eight years. It's amateur hour that it's best. And uh, there needs to be some kind of a shake-up uh, from the top to the bottom to make sure that, you know, this government does not become dysfunctional because that's sort of what we're seeing. You know, ministers not knowing key information about their department, that's not how government works. Well, I want to quickly turn uh,
2: to the foreign interference story and how that's developed with Joel Denis because one week ago, uh, we had David Johnston resigning, saying the partisan atmosphere had made it impossible for him to continue. Uh, now, in the days since, we've seen some cross-partisan talks on a potential public inquiry. We've had the government saying we need opposition feedback on this. What do you make of how this story has been evolving?
4: Well, we're back to square one, I guess. Uh, In March, Mr. Trudeau thought he could, you know, dodge the issue or dodge that bullet by appointing a rapporteur which was a new word for a lot of people <laughs> rapporteur. now he's back to square one and i think uh, the fact that um, he's reaching out to opposition parties is just showing that he knows his corner on that issue and the only way out to me is to launch a public consultation with the support of the opposition parties contributing to maybe to uh, suggestion as to who could lead that uh, public inquiry. So uh, I guess the issue is now is so important you know it's the future of democracy that it needs to be a trans-partisan I mean cross-partisan uh, dealt with. Yeah, Tonda how do you see this, the, this onus now
2: that the government is putting on the opposition here?
1: Well I'm not sure that no matter what names are put forward that all parties will necessarily agree. The Bloc Québécois put forward a number of names this week, including Louise Arbour. And I already heard people say, well, her daughter ran for the NDP, and including Erwin Cutler, who, by the way, was a former Liberal cabinet minister. So, look, there's always, I think the opposition parties are going to always reserve their right to criticize, and I don't think that they're going to let the Trudeau government or the Prime Minister himself off the hook for making a tough decision. He needs to make a decision. It will be his and at the end of the day, and they will reserve the right to criticize it. But it, it's, it's a clever man, maneuver on the government's part to try and get the opposition to take some responsibility for it. But really, it is a government decision on how to deal with this. And actually, there, I think we've said this before on this panel, there are de- actions they could have taken and should take more quickly. Establish a foreign interference or a foreign influence registry make foreign interference in elections a criminal offence. Why is that not already the case? So look, there are actions that the government should and could take responsibility for immediately.
2: And Bob, we certainly heard diaspora groups for instance say that they want more action. You could be doing some of the things we've recommended uh, for a public inquiry. is going to take a very long time uh, yeah, but to come a to conclusions. Inquiry,
3: a public inquiry uh, is 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 really important because we have to find out uh, how much why did the government know about these interference in 2019 and 2021 uh, was it ignored because it may have benefited the liberals or not that has not really been answered by uh, by mr johnson because he simply accepted the word of the liberals and you know we need to, uh, a public inquiry if the terms of references are done properly by the opposition parties will be able to say, okay, you know, you, you, you're, you uh, hopefully uh, would be a judge, where you can uh, compel evidence, you can get subpoena powers, you can actually find out what has gone on. In fact, w- whether there was a lot of o- um, inaction in, uh, in other agencies as well. But we need to find this out. And at the same time, we need to find out, we need to come up with other solutions than just what Tonda Ta- is talking about, long-term solutions. And I, I think the NDP make a very good point. This activity is not unique to China, even though they're the number one uh, country of concern. It's, it's happening in the uh, South Asian community in this country. Uh, and I think Mr. Singh spoke eloquently about how, as a Sikh Canadian, how he's, uh, many in his community have felt that the Indian government has been interfering in in the democratic process in this country. So it's it's not, you know, because we're a pluralistic multicultural society, you do have some of this stuff involved in our election process, whether it's at the municipal level or the provincial level or the federal level, and we need to have, Uh, laws in place or safeguards in place to protect Canadians so they can vote freely. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Bob, Tonda, and
2: Joel Denis, thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew.
0: We must strive to inspire and be careful not to incite. And we must debate with insightful reason, not just tweet out of frustration. Because if we don't, Mr. Speaker decades in the future, Canadians will point to this parliament as the time when our national decline began.
2: That was the message from Aaron O'Toole in his farewell speech to the House. The former Conservative leader and cabinet minister is about to leave parliament after more than a decade as MP for Durham, Ontario. But Aaron O'Toole is making a stop at the CPAC studio on his way out of Ottawa. Aaron O'Toole, good to see you. Good to see you, Andrew. So your speech on Monday, uh, very interesting. You you said too many politicians are are chasing social media likes and algorithms, that there's too much focus on performance politics and virtue uh, virtue signaling instead of substantive discussion. So I do want to ask, is is that a message to your own party and to the leader that's succeeded to you?
0: It's a message to all politicians. Um, It's the biggest difference I've noticed since I was led into the House after my by-election. Uh, over 10 years ago to today. You know I served under Prime Minister Harper who really didn't do anything on Facebook or, or Twitter and these sorts of things. But now that's almost essential battleground for politics and over time with algorithms and with performing for just a sample of Canadians who happen to follow you, you're actually not talking to all Canadians and that's now translating into the House itself. So social media has really transformed politics. It probably explains some of the division, probably explains these weird minority governments where for now twice in a row Justin Trudeau has lost the popular vote but won the seat count. And so let's make sure we're not just talking to our followers, we're talking to all Canadians.
2: And I was struck in, in listening to your speech um, about what you said when you left the leadership last year. That was, of course, at the height of the convoy protests. You said the Conservative Party had uh, two options. One was a message of inclusion and hope reflecting uh, a modern Canada, and the other option was to be angry and negative and extreme. You called that a dead end that would keep Conservatives out of government. So we're about 16-odd months later. Uh, which of those two paths do you think your own party is taking?
0: Well, I think right now we're on the path to form government. If you look at the polls, I think Pierre is poised to win the next election. The issue will be, do we win enough seats to actually govern? Um, Mr. Trudeau has a coalition with the NDP. Jagmeet Singh is is holding this government afloat. And so for us to actually make real progress on a number of issues and and change, you're going to need the support of the House. So it's not just winning the election now really it's winning majority, or having enough ideas where there's some overlap with parties on the other side to get legislation through. We can't be so absolute that we could win government, but not win the support of the House and then be back in an election. So I think we're going to win the next election, but I think we do have to offer some policies to talk more to urban and suburban Canada. Um, Otherwise there's just not enough seats in rural Canada or in Western Canada to hold long-term government and that's what I think the country needs to get back on track, a a longer-term stable conservative government.
2: Okay now in your goodbye the other day you also talked about uh, letting conspiracy theories go unchallenged, letting other people define how issues get debated and you said you yourself were guilty of becoming a follower of your followers uh, in a sense. When did that happen for you?
0: well i don 't think I ever got to a point that I was a follower of my followers. it It probably <laughs> led to my expulsion. Some people didn 't support some of the moves I made on the environment and things like that, but i didn 't always have the right tone uh, in discussing things on social media or sometimes talking to only a slice of of the population but the 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 movements now that politicians try to capture, whether it's some of the conspiracy theories we see on the UN or other things, or whether it was the sh- Shutdown Canada movement, where people were saying let's shut down the rail lines and have blockades um, just before the election that, uh, that the NDP were speaking to, those are just movements fueled online. They're not actually speaking to a broad cross-section of Canadians. So I think what we have to do is channel some of the frustrations out there not into, um, you know, negative directions, let's try and put forward policies that can get broad support, get our resources to market, that was an example I used, and I don't see that happening. The left is talking about climate apocalypse and, and the right often doesn't even talk about getting emissions down. So where can we find something to make progress so we can get our resources to market but also lower our emissions and I think we need more serious debate
2: in the House of Commons to get there. And I guess the key question is, is how you get to that point of serious debate when you have uh, the power of social media, the power of uh, technology and how technology continues to alter how people consume information, how they interact with each other, what kind of, of information uh, they're consuming. It's, it's a big challenge for the, for the MPs that remain on Parliament Hill, whatever party they're in.
0: It is a huge challenge. And this is one area we've seen some political co- cooperation We've seen Conservatives like Bob Zimmer and uh, Liberals like Nathaniel Erskine-Smith work on transparency for algorithms and for social media companies because I think a lot of Canadians don't realize that you watch that one video, you're going to then be teed up six more and soon you don't even realize that you are looking at one line of content and you're not getting a broad view. So more transparency, our Parliament's looked at that a little bit, but also making sure that Parliament is not irrelevant. Parliament shouldn't just be for, um, you know, a clip for our supporters and a clip for theirs. And we're seeing MPs like the, the MP for Kingston, who really just trolls people in the House and on, on online. That's not helping debate. All sides are a bit guilty of this. So maybe more time for question period, maybe more serious debates in the House. Uh, maybe allow the speaker a bit of latitude to to have speakers get up that actually know the subject and are going to have serious contr- contributions. So we control the levers to our parliamentary democracy. The impact of social media means, hey, we may have to update things we've been doing for 50 years because they're not working right now. So I think I'm still very optimistic. I ended my speech saying I have faith in my fellow MPs on all sides. So my, my, warnings and my observations was really because I believe they can make a positive change and really get the country into a better, more united form after the last few years of tensions with the pandemic.
2: Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Aaron O'Toole, thank you so much for your time and best of luck as you leave Parliament. Thank you, Andrew. Canada's Chief Justice delivered his annual update to journalists this week. Richard Wagner warning of a justice system under strain because of judge vacancies and facing questions about Russell Brown's resignation from the Supreme Court. I had a chance to speak more with the Chief Justice about those issues. Here's a look at our conversation. Chief Justice Richard Wagner, thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon. Now, most of the questions you faced this past Tuesday were, of course, on Russell Brown's departure and how that puts an end to the review of his alleged conduct. You said you have concerns about transparency in the process and and what the public finds out. What are the specific changes you think need to happen so that the
5: public uh, feels more reassured about these kind of situations? Well, without referring to the the case of, uh, of Mr. Brown, because I cannot talk about that case, but uh, generally speaking, uh, since at least 2018, 2019, uh, I realized that uh, when you look at the judicial conduct process at the GDC, the CGC, there was changes to be to be uh, to be brought to the process because it was not it was too long, too costly, and uh, and not transparent, and that's why I asked from the beginning that the Judges Act be amended so that the judicial conduct process be amended and be shortened while respecting uh, the rights of the judge to be defended defended and also the right of the public to be protected. And so that's why the government introduced legislation in 2021 at the Senate. And to make a story short, uh, after that, it was called the C-9 legislation. It's still before Parliament, and that legislation Uh, As several provisions to shorten the delays, so without, uh, so it would uh, it would not be possible, for instance, to uh, to launch uh, appeal proceedings or judicial review on any decisions rendered or released during the process. It would make the process more public. In other words, uh, there are provisions in that legislation that would indicate when a complaint could be made public. Uh, when, when the results of a, an inquiry would make, would make public. Uh, it will provide also that a, P, a um, member of the public would participate also on hearing at different, uh, different levels. So overall, it's a good legislation. It is aimed as making the process more transparent so that people could understand it. And, uh, and uh, unfortunately, it's still before Parliament. And it was adopted by the House of Commons recently. It went to the, uh, to the Senate. The Senate uh, is asking some amendments. Most of those amendments are, are dismissed by the Justice Minister. So the, 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 the C9 has returned to the House of Commons, and it's still there. So I hope, I wish that this legislation be adopted in the best interest of the public.
2: Okay, I want to turn now to judicial vacancies, another topic uh, you've been talking about. You had written to the Prime Minister this spring on delays to uh, getting some new names on the bench. What was the response from him?
5: Well, the, the letter followed the complaint by my 42 chief justices across the country uh, during the last, um, the last meeting of the CJC in April. And, uh, you know, they, they realized that in all provinces, there were more than 80 vacancies. Judges were not appointed. Even chief justices were not appointed, and then associate chief justices were not appointed in within a reasonable delay. So I took upon myself, following my discussion with my colleagues, to to, to advise the, the prime minister, to tell him that there is a serious problem here and uh, that there are consequences. And uh, so following my letter, uh, the prime minister called me, and uh, I explained again to him that uh, the fact that uh, uh, the uh, judges were not appointed, created a lot of problems in all provinces. You know where judges were not available to hear cases, that some other judges had to decide which cases will proceed. A judge should not be ab- forced to do that. Uh, there is an impact also on, on uh, mental health issues for judges who are overburdened by by the other files, and uh, so at the end of the day there could be also stay of proceedings because criminal trials could not proceed within uh, the delays of Jordan, for instance. And that bring into, uh, into question uh, the credibility of the, of the justice system, and therefore, the, uh, the nature of our democracy. Are there certain regions, then, that, that have you worried? Certain provinces, There's certain what? territories? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the same situation everywhere. But I must say that in Alberta, uh, the Chief Justice of the of the King's Bench, Mary Morrow, uh, advised that uh, there were many, many cases uh, which are uh, covered by this problem, and that uh, state of proceedings can 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 result f- um, from the, from those omissions. So, have you seen or heard anything back then
2: from the federal government since you've written that letter that gives you more optimism in terms of of, of getting some of these vacancies? Well, filled? it
5: was it was quite recent Uh, the Prime Minister called me after receiving my letter I I take some comfort in the way he addressed my letter and we'll have to
2: wait and see okay I want to turn to another topic that you've raised in the past which is your concern about access to justice especially for disadvantaged Canadians have you been seeing any progress over the past year or two since you first brought this uh, out into the public sphere
5: Well, access to justice uh, is a problem uh, that we're talking about for, for many, many years. And it means many, many things. You know, Access to justice means the right to the right information, to know for any member of the public to understand and know whether he or she has a right. Uh, it means also access to the courts physically, uh, to have access to a judge. So there must be a judge available. That means also the cost to have access to a court uh, with a reasonable budget. So it means many, many things. So there is no one single solution. There is no magic remedy. Um, I think that uh, it needs the efforts of every stakeholders in the justice system, the governments, to properly fund the system, uh, properly pay for, the, uh, for the, 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 the the employees, the staff at the courthouse, uh, the clerks, uh, sheriffs, uh, uh, judicial assistants. And also the bar has a responsibility to promote other ways of dealing with the disputes instead of having always to go to court. Uh, The pro bono work is part of the solution. Increased legal aid would would help also uh, the access to justice. So it takes a lot of goodwill. But I think we're going in the right direction. Because I think that every stakeholder is now sensitive to the issue. And uh, there are different initiatives in different provinces. Okay, let me finish with uh, one question about your own work on the Supreme
2: Court. Now, of course, that Russell Brown has retired, you've got a vacancy. What does that do to your workload uh, and the workload of your other uh, colleagues?
5: Well, that means that uh, my colleagues and I will will, will work a bit harder uh, in order to, to uh, make sure that uh, Uh, the fact that we miss one judge uh, won't make a difference but you know we've been sitting at seven and five judges uh since february as a matter of fact uh, the court usually sit at seven uh, most of the time Mm -hmm. uh, whereas sometimes we sit at nine for the most important cases like the references or constitutional issues but uh, we will continue to render decisions uh, uh, up until the new appointment and i wish of course, that the new judge be appointed as soon as possible.
2: Okay, we'll have to leave it there and uh, wait to see what happens on that front. Chief Justice Richard Wagner, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you, my pleasure. And that's all for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Andrew Thompson, and for all of us at CPAC, thanks for watching, and have a wonderful weekend.